Hey everybody, uh, coming to you from a different environment. Um, my office door, the door is jammed shut. Well, actually not my door, but the door to get to my door is jammed shut right now. So they're waiting on maintenance to fix it. So while we wait, I'm going to go ahead and record this lecture coming to you from one of the classrooms in Burris. I hope it's not too echoey, um, but uh, nevertheless, hopefully you completed your first exam. Um, I looked through it. Almost everyone uh, appeared to do that. So uh, I don't know if I should say I look forward to grading them or not, but, I, but I'll get to that hopefully this weekend and give you, uh, give you your scores back. I don't know how, um, how detailed the comments will be, um, but I will do a, a lecture out, uh, sorry, a lecture or a podcast where I um, explain the exam and the answers and all that kind of stuff. So let's get started. I'm really excited about today. We start our, uh, our first text, Clearing the Plains. There it is. Um, I'm really excited to read this with you and, and, and talk about it. Um, I know the in-person students, uh, I hope to have some good discussions. So um, let's get into it. You know, when I... Um, Thought about GPS 220. This, you know, this is a course that I've taught many, many times. I've taught it more than any other class at Wingate. You know, if I had to add up the amount of times I've taught it, I would probably say 60 to 70 times at this point um, in my career. And, you know, one of the things that I like to do is, is, is just explore different topics depending on kind of what's going on in the world. And so, um, you know, given COVID and given the, the situation we find ourselves in as a country, um, at, well, as, a, as a globe, I guess, as a world, um, I wanted to explore some ideas related to disease, to health, and, and how that intersection of health and disease um, interacts with the government, the state, the people, and so on. And so the first text we're going to read is called Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. And what we're going to look at is how basically what we call indigenous people, what maybe growing up you might have called Native Americans or Indians, um, how these people were subject to um, very much uh, the, the problems, the curse of disease, but also starvation, you know, economic uh, climate changes that were happening. And so if we if we read this book, which is, you know, kind of a, a political history um, a cultural history of indigenous people, primarily in the western part of Canada. If we read this, we'll find a lot of parallels to what we're going through now, how much disease can impact the way we live our lives. Now, let's just be honest about something. Um, you know, we, we are going through, most of us are going through this pandemic, able to watch Netflix, and, and many people are able to still go to work and, and, and live normal, uh, you know, live kind of a normal life. Um, but this past week, you know, 200,000 people. Uh, have died now from COVID just in the United States. All right. I think globally, this number pushes close to half a million at this point. So this is a pretty serious thing, but it's impacting us in a, in a modern environment that, um, you know, we're, we're being impacted in a, in a, in a somewhat different way. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there's very much parallels to draw between what you know, kind of indigenous people dealt with in terms of how disease impacted their lives, right? And how they tried to make sense of it and tried to deal with it. And the same time, how a disease would affect any of us, right? And how we try to impact it and deal with it. So um, I want to focus today on kind of getting us started in this text, where, where it, it's headed. Um, and, uh, and please, please, please read. 
you know, I've, I've been pretty, um, pretty relaxed thus far. The first three weeks of class, no reading. So now, you know, I'm asking you to read basically 20 to 30 pages per class period. And, and I think you'll find in doing so that it'll be enriching for you. So we're thinking about disease, economics, and politics. And, and I hope by the end of this, we find out that we, we living through COVID aren't that different from our ancestors. That disease has been a central feature of, of life um, for as long as we've been around. And so, you know, the diseases might change, the way we interact with them and deal with them might change. But, you know, disease is, is a big deal in terms of organi organizing our life. To, to be healthy matters. And any of you that have ever been sick for any uh, extended period of time understand, you know, how important your health is. I know it's a cliche, but it's one of those true ones. You know, there's, there's nothing more important than, than your health. Um, and so intersecting, you know, kind of a society, in this case, indigenous people, with a traumatic disease, primarily smallpox that we'll talk about today, but also things like tuberculosis, um, has a major impact. All right. In the very first page of the text, the word American Holocaust appears. Um, it's pretty jarring to read, right? Um, for many of you, you probably haven't seen these words put together uh, in this in this way. Of course, we 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 know about the Holocaust um, of Jews in Europe um, in the 1940s, uh, but American Holocaust? What? Jeez, uh, that that sounds that sounds dramatic. What what is that about? Well, the first thing I, I need to say is the word America here. The, the way the word America is used in this text is what we would call the Americas which would include North America and South America and Central America, okay? So it not only includes the United States of America, but also Canada, Mexico, Central America, South America, and so on. So we're not simply talking here about um, America as the place that's in between, you know, um, Maine and Florida and Washington and California and Alaska, okay? We're talking about the Americas broadly. But let's just look at the numbers. One scholar says that there were perhaps 90 million indigenous people in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, 90 million. Um, that is about a third of the population of the United States right now, a little less than a third of the population of the United States. That 90 million declined by as much as 95%. All right. So, you know, going from 90 million to somewhere between three and 10 million, three and 11 million, something like that, that's a that's a drastic change. Um, and so, you know, this idea of this just incredible loss of life has to be wrestled with. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to just you know state something pretty plainly right now. I mean, I, you know, this isn't any kind of political statement. But, you know, how do, how do you see America and Holocaust beside one another? How does that strike you? OK, again, in this context, America's is defined as essentially um, all the Americas combined, but, but this is a, a pretty staggering number. Uh, and we're going to see how disease greatly impacted these figures and, and in what ways they did. And, and, and at least for the first two chapters, a lot of this is, is fairly unintentional uh, in, its, in its cause, right? Um, things that, that just happened, things that are hard to control. And yet um, these interactions between old world and new world, we'll see, uh, have major have major impacts. All right. 
this book is essentially going to be a history of disease and, and at times violence. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that the author wants to point out very quickly is that disease existed in the Americas long before Europeans arrived. Um, so, you know, the indigenous people were dealing with, for example, something like tuberculosis before its uh, introduction or a strain of its introduction prior to uh, uh, European settlers and, and uh, colonizers. So we, sh we should uh, dissuade someone from thinking that disease was only a European um, uh, factor. You know, the contribution of Europe to, to, the, uh, to the Americas was disease, okay? Um, disease already existed. Um, for example, uh, one of the uh, examples used is that of Crow Creek um, and, and how basically uh, tuberculosis um, had ravaged that community so much so that um, they became incredibly malnourished. And when there were skirmishes with other uh, indigenous people, that they, it was just incredible loss of life because they had no way to defend themselves. You know, it, it made them physically weak. And so I, I hope one of the things that happens as we read this is we, we have a kind of empathetic um, uh, and, and also, I, I guess, some sympathy as well you know, for what went on three and four and 500 years ago. I mean, imagine what it feels like when you get really sick, how weak that makes you feel. And then on top of that, you're trying to sustain your life. You're, you're trying to go to your job. Um, you're trying to work for a living. You know, in the case of Crow Creek, you know, they may be trying to farm or maybe trying to hunt um, in order to get from day to day. And they, and they simply can't. All right. So early on this, uh, this major disease, which, which, existed prior um, to European uh, uh, conquest of the Americas was tuberculosis. And the book describes that it, that it had various forms. It had a human form, a human strain, and then a strain from bison. Of course, given that bison are native to the Americas, um, this bison strain, the book, the, the text argues, was just as serious and just as uh, vicious as its human strain. Let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we return, we will talk about climate change and how this impacts disease and people's ability to live. All right, and we are back. So let's talk a little bit about climate change. Um, in the first chapter, uh, one of the things that's mentioned is the sort of changing what we might call economic patterns, or at least patterns in the way people sustain their uh, their their life in, in, term, in terms of eating, in terms of surviving, right? Gathering food, getting food, and so on. Um, there are many different uh, terms used in this text, but basically the, the, the major term that will be used is something called the Neo-Atlantic Climate Episode. And this is this maybe three or 400 year stretch uh, where the climate gave rise to uh, one, some stability, but also, you know, basically what we might call uh, suitable climates or, or warm enough climates to really be hospitable to, to certain plants, certain uh, uh, livestock, certain animals that made, you know, really kind of have an, an abundant um, or a bountiful degree of uh, access to goods. Okay. And so what this did was, is it gave rise to um, more modern notions of farming. So 
you know, prior to this event, one of the things that we know about so many cultures is the is the movement uh, from place to place, kind of exhausting resources, then moving to a new place and exhausting resources and so on. So there wasn't this um, what we think of now as kind of a modern perspective on, you know, occupying one spot of land, um, farming on that piece of land and kind of doing this in a cycle over and over again. But this is this is what happens in this um, neo-Atlantic climate episode. And what this does is this moves indigenous people to more what they call semi-sedentary lifestyles. And there's a, an interesting um, example in the text about Greenland and how, you know, traditionally indigenous people would, would sort of move and be able to, to, to kind of pick up and go as they needed. Whereas the Norse people who were of European origin, you know, had a more sedentary lifestyle. They, they, they kind of picked a place. So as the environment began to change, the Norse were unprepared to move frequently or quickly, whereas indigenous people in Greenland were able to kind of pick and move and choose where they wanted to go, and this helped to sustain their lifestyle. Um, that said, if we look at the Americas, broadly speaking, those indigenous people that adopted semi-sedentary lifestyle, this came uh, at a great cost as the climate and the environment changed. And again, we're talking about generations and generations where it worked fine. We're not talking about just one day a, a, a flip switched or a, a switch flipped, excuse me. Um, there was a cooling period of about 30 years. And this cooling period destroyed these local economies. Um, and only in the indigenous populations that adapted were able to, to survive. And so one example is the example of the Cahokia people. This is on page five. And I'm, I'm going to read this from page five. Read about, um, I guess, this whole paragraph here where essentially, as it's described, the Cahokia people had adopted almost a, a modern, um, what we, you know, and I, I don't want to use this pejoratively, but um, a sort of a new way to live um, in the Americas and sort of what happened when this cooling period uh, lasted for 30 years. Many others were not so fortunate. The most spectacular failure during this period of climatic decline was the disintegration of Cahokia. By the turn of the 14th century, the city was losing its grip on its vast hinterland. Soon, Cahokia itself was abandoned. By the 1450s, portions of the American bottoms, the heartland of what had been an almost continental system of trade and ideology, were so depopulated that they are referred to in the archaeological literature as the vacant quarter. And by the way, as you'll see in this text, archaeology plays a major role um, because that's one of the ways that uh, we understand kind of how people lived, what they ate. Um, how tall they were, what their bone density was like, what they died from. So this is how we can analyze disease. This isn't perfect. And of course, if there's an incomplete archaeological record, it's hard to know everything. But in these big kind of finds where you, where you might find um, a burial, for example, you, uh, anthropologists and archaeologists are able to, um, or excuse me, archaeologists are able to make sense of, um, you know, what, what was happening in that time period. Violence undoubtedly accompanied the failure of the cities of the region as the masses, including those who labor, had built this massive mound complexes by hand, lost faith in the religious elite who were unable to maintain control in the face of repeated large-scale crop failure. Outside the crumbling metropolis, once bountiful villages found their new way of life untenable. So this idea of a village, you know, this small community, this small society, um, as the climate changed, uh, the, the village model 
was simply no longer sustainable. The abandonment of woodland villages was so widespread that it triggered a wave of migration from Texas to Minnesota as whole societies turned west in search of refuge. This is part of the story of kind of the moving westward uh, toward parts of Canada and parts of the American West as well. The invasion of Crow Creek was but one tragic episode in a process that must have been repeated hundreds of times as large, sophisticated, and desperate communities overtook smaller and less powerful settlements across the Midwest. So here's a for example. The exodus of the Siouan-speaking Oneota people from their homeland in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa toward the Great Plains, where they overtook the inhabitants of the Central Plains tradition in western Iowa and Nebraska, has been described as, quote, colonial expansion. Other Siouan communities that abandoned their homes in the Ohio Valley are thought to be ancestors of several nations west of the Mississippi, including the Ponca, the Quopaw, the Osage, and the Omaha. So here we have an example of where climate change greatly impacts migrations and movements and, and the places that people can live. Now, it's too soon to know, you know, to what extent um, something like the California wildfires, you know, to what degree we can say climate change, to what we degree we can say sort of man-made you know, disaster, to what degree we can say, you know, better planning, right? The point is this, you know, if climate change um, poses such tremendous harms, you know, the, the harm of terrible hurricanes, the harm of terrible wildfires, this will greatly impact the places that people live and move to, okay? So if you can, if you live in Louisiana and you continue year in and year out now to be battered by hurricanes, which used to be once in maybe a 50-year phenomenon, but now is a yearly if not multi-yearly thing, then it's going to affect your migration pattern. You're going to pick up a move. No, no different than three and 400 years ago with native populations. Um, if they could not farm, if they could not feed themselves, if they ran into issues of malnutrition, they had to move. All right. And this is what we see in the case of Cahokia. No better example of this move was the move of uh, indigenous people who were in what we would now called the United States of America, uh, to Canada and towards the Western Plains. Um, this is a result of the changing economic patterns of the day and also, you know, the importance of finding in particular things like bison and beaver. Okay. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the beaver pelt, right, as a form of currency uh, is something that you might be familiar with. But just the importance of bison generally um, in terms of hunting uh, for native populations and also, of course, the importance of finding water. When we had our discussion, the very first lecture we had in class about, you know, politics, we said that one of the big uh, political um, to-dos is it getting access to clean water. One of the most basic things that a state bureaucracy does is provide people access to water. Again, no different than four and 500 years ago. So here we have a population of people who adopt a certain lifestyle the climate changes and they are forced to change. All right. They are forced to kind of be on the move. Right. Well, all of this is happening at the same time that basically, well, we know that there is this other major change occurring, and that is the resettlement of the new world. You'll notice in the text, they talk about the pre-Columbian and the post-Columbian world. Pre-Columbian is pre-Columbus. So pre-1492. Post-Columbian is post-1492, so basically the 16th century on um, in making sense of what's going on in indigenous populations. 
The virgin soil epidemic, what they call VSE, is the idea of a pathogen or a disease affecting a community for the very first time. Um, and so if we, now we're getting into, you know, the, the, one of the heart of the matter is, you know, think about COVID. Um, the reason COVID is so challenging and problematic is because it is a novel virus, novel meaning new. All right. So in order to get immunity um, or to build up some familiarity with the virus in our body, you would have to be exposed to it in some way. Okay. So you, you've all heard about uh, what's now called you know, herd immunity. Well, one of the ways that we, in a, in a modern context, get herd immunity is we get it through um, something like a vaccine, where enough people get this vaccine, their body's been exposed to it, and they can kind of fight it off. The other way for herd immunity is, is naturally. We just all get this virus, or many people do, so much so that it ceases to circulate because we built up um, an immunity to it. The tricky part about COVID, as we know, is that um, its ability to replicate and its ability, in other words, to spread and its uh, death toll, its death rate um, is such that, you know, the, the, the millions and millions and millions of people needed to get herd immunity would be a, a, an incredible loss of life. OK, so in this case, COVID is uh, something of a virgin soil epidemic for, for anyone that comes in contact with it. We are finding this pathogen for the first time. Now, we've all experienced other coronaviruses in our life, whether it is some type of um, like common cold, for example. So it's not that our body is a complete uh, quote unquote virgin to disease, but this particular type of coronavirus poses that challenge. So um, these pathogens um, are traveling in not necessarily the way that we might think. All right. So what many initially thought happened with the spread of the virus is not exactly what actually did happen. So how does a pathogen travel? It travels from typically person to person. And in some cases, some pathogens can travel from animals to people as well. We know this is certainly true of, of, uh, of, of many, many diseases. The initial thought goes like this. The initial story is this. Um, Europeans get on a boat. They come to the Americas. They get off the boat. They give it to the native populations. The native populations give it to one another. And we have this cataclysmic event. Um, that's not exactly what happens. Right. And so on page 12 and 13, I want to read with how these pathogens um, uh, initially uh, begin to circulate. And then sort of what happens um, almost 150 years down the road um, from this initial contact uh, in the in the what we might call the, the beginning of this post-Columbian environment. All right, this is on page 12 and we're gonna read 12 and part of page 13, middle of uh, the page. Microbes were the swiftest and most potent force in the environmental process described by Alfred Crosby as the ecological conquest of the new world. Disease came in lockstep as Europeans established benchheads on the eastern seaboard of North America. Some, such as historian and psychiatrist David S. Jones, have argued that the interaction of disease and the influence of the colonial encounter on the social, cultural, and physical environments of indigenous communities have a greater role in the outcome of epidemics than genetic susceptibility. In some cases, like that of the arrival of the Mayflower, celebrated each November by hundreds of millions of Americans, 
Disease preceded the arrival of settlers, clearing the way for what was considered to be a providential feast among the newcomers. Despite their catastrophic impact on indigenous communities, the time and distance. Now, listen here. <coughs> Excuse me. Despite their catastrophic impact on indigenous communities, the time and distance required for transatlantic travel actually limited the spread of disease to the New World. During sea voyages lasting six weeks or more, infections aboard ship often ran their natural courses and expired before landfall. So here we have an example where the, the traditional understanding of how the disease gets somewhere may not be the case. The disease might have already circulated in this long trip prior to getting to the, the Americas. Here's another thing. Low population densities in the new colonies, coupled with the short life cycle of pathogens, the short life cycle in this case, prevented most old world infections, the most dangerous of which was smallpox, from becoming endemic or self-sustaining until the end of the 18th century, 150 years or more after the introduction to the continent. In Canada, the slow pace of French settlement along the St. Lawrence River stalled the spread of epidemic diseases for a generation after initial outbreaks in the English and Dutch colonies of the Atlantic seaboard. So what we have here is, is, is basically what we think was how the disease spread is not exactly how it spread. It wasn't Europeans get off a boat, they give it to the indigenous people, and then it starts to spread and, and have dastardly effects. There was certainly some of that, but that's, that's not the, the, the Holocaust, as was mentioned in that first um, paragraph of the text. So what did happen? With the exception of a few missionaries and traders, few people left the relative safety of the French colony. Instead, the Huron nation and its allies undertook the exchange of furs for European trade goods as the commercial economy took root. In keeping with long-standing practices, the Huron also produced corn, squash, beans, and tobacco for consumption for both settlers and fur producers in the interior. The dominance of the early trade with the French, though, proved to be their undoing. As contact increased, the transportation routes that they controlled soon became effective vectors of disease. By the 1630s, imported strains of measles, influenza, and smallpox swept through the First Nations. By the way, the term First Nations is used to describe Native Americans in Canada. That's what it's called, the First Nations, adjacent to the French colony, reducing the indigenous population of the region by half. So it wasn't boat, get off the boat, contract the virus. It was boat, expansion, 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 interaction in terms of trade, especially fur trade. And over time, as these fur trades and, and, and trading routes generally got denser, um, we start to see the circulation of viruses, um, basically, right, the traders getting it and then bringing it back. So let's talk about these traders for a second versus the everyday people. Um, the book describes these traders as, as what as what are called middlemen. And by the way, when we're talking about traders here, we're talking about people that engage in trade, T-R-A-D-E, not traders like someone who's a, you know, a, a trader against their country. These middlemen, it's quite interesting. These middlemen um, basically get immune. These middlemen are exposed to the virus in such a way that um, they, they are able, when I say virus, viruses, they're exposed to these various pathogens that they actually kind of build up 
um, some immunity. And they and they also um, live a kind of quarantine because they're they're out these outposts. And by the time the, the pathogen might work through them, then at that point they go back to, to you know to their community that they live. So it's a, it's a really fascinating case study in kind of how a quarantine might work. All right. But some things begin to change. And what begins to change is on page 19. And we're going to read a little bit on page 19, then page 23, then page 26. All right. And the issue here is speed. So speed, distance. And then the last part there is incubation. Middle of page 19, middle of the second paragraph. For smallpox to have spread halfway across the continent, certain criteria had to be met. Without large urban centers in the interior and with vulnerable populations dispersed across a vast region of the eastern and central woodlands, the virus needed speed to remain viable. So someone needs to pick it up and take it to someone quickly. The incubation of prodromal stage of the disease lasts from 9 to 16 days after infection. Sound familiar? This is very much similar to COVID. 9 to 16 days. Those who carry the germ become infectious between 13 and 20 days after inhalation of the virus, and the disease is spread through the exhalation of infected individuals. So another respiratory virus um, that can be exchanged through breathing, particles, droplets, and all that. Again, very similar in this regard to, to what we understand now to, to, to look like COVID. According to historian Stedman Upham, the total infectious period can last a little more than three weeks, a mean of 26.75 days, and terminates with either the patient's recovery or death. It has long been recognized, however, that the smallpox corpse is a potent and continuing source of infection. So if the middlemen pick up this disease in these trade outposts, and they fight it, okay? So they pick it up, and they fight it. As long as they are not in contact with anyone for, let's say, 30 days, let's say a month, then it can't really get to these other places. Now, of course, there are going to be some traders that are going to get it and die. But again, they're being exposed in these interactions to lots of different viruses and bugs, picking them up, dropping them, and so on and so forth. So what happens? Well, Here's what happens. Speed happens. These trade routes are mainly on the water, okay? And so as these routes get more dense, as these routes get closer together, as the trade outposts get closer together, as technology in, in boats change, okay? As it gets easier to make these exchanges and get quickly home, wherever home is, that cycle of the virus that once took maybe, let's say, 30 days to get out of you, you can now go home in maybe 10 days. You're going to take that virus back to your community. We know this is exactly what happened with COVID. Okay. Um, in Italy, uh, which was the, the second, one of the, I think the second or the third major outbreak from China, there were traders that were going to China, uh, to, particularly to the, to, to the Wuhan area. They uh, would pick up the disease and maybe they wouldn't themselves get sick, but they were bringing it back to vulnerable populations in their communities. So this is why it hit Milan, for example, really, really hard. Okay, people going from this particular area, going to Wuhan, bring it back to um, these areas in uh, in Italy. Okay, 
So this is on page 23. We're talking about the Kootenai people. This is, uh, this is around what is now modern-day Idaho um, and also north of that into Canada. By the third decade of the 18th century, the spread afforded by equestrianism allowed smallpox to spread among the Numic horse distribution network in the western plains of Canada. So not only do we have routes based on water and boats, but now we have horses speed. Because of the territory controlled by the Comanche, the, the Ute, the Shoshone, and their allies was under indigenous control beyond the view of Europeans, we will never have a full understanding of indigenous life in this period or the impact of the VSE, the virgin um, soil epidemic that spread across the western portion of the continent. Oral histories from several First Nations involved in the horse trade in the Plateau region refer to a severe epidemic and territorial changes in its wake. Kootenai tradition maintains that the Kootenai were driven from the western margins of the plains and into the mountains after their infection with smallpox in the 1730s. All right. So now we've shortened distance. We've taken speed into effect. And now this virus, which might have run its course for 30 days, is now infecting populations in that 16 to 26 day window. Let's look at page 26. How serious was this disease? By 1740, disease was the primary factor in the wholesale redistribution of indigenous populations in Western Canada. In the East, the fur trade brought significant epidemic mortality to the Monsoni, uh, Assiniboine, and Dakota, opening a pathway for the Anishinaabe expansion to the plains. Along the Missouri, the infection of the Arakara and others marked the beginning of the end for the sedentary horticultural villages of the Eastern Plains. Without any intention, Europeans brought what was this deadly, deadly, disastrous virus, which would wipe out, um, in some cases, entire communities, and in other cases, a great deal uh, of a community as well. Disease. And we're wrestling with that right in our own midst today. Let's stop there. Um, we'll pick this back up, pages or chapters three and four, when I see you next time. Thanks.